the How Could You Podcast. I'm Lauren Tossie. And I'm Ryan Tossie. We were friends a long time ago, laughing, rapping, chasing girls, obeying no laws, except the law of caring. Basketball days and high nights. No tomorrows. Unable to remember yesterday. We live for today. Please tell me that's inscribed in the front of your high school yearbook. Oh, I totally wish it was. I mean, that is just a great piece of dialogue, a great quote. Yeah, the writing for the film we're going to be talking about today is so incredible. Yeah, I mean, we live for today, just perfection. Oh, so good. Well, welcome, everyone. If this is your first time checking us out, thank you so much for listening. We are two people who fell in love at a movie theater and never quite left. We started this podcast as two film-obsessed people to fill gaps in our film knowledge. Like, for me, I had not seen The Goonies until I was an adult. And we've continued on to include just films that we really want to talk about. Although today, we are returning to form, and we have filled a gap in both of our film knowledges with the film we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, and I'm really, really happy we did, because this is a movie that I have been giddy to talk about. Could not wait for this episode. Uh, We watched it a couple weeks ago, and it has just sat with me in the best ways possible, just thinking about it over and over again and how amazing it is. So, so happy we do this podcast and so (laughs) happy we uh, filled this gap. I'm so excited about this one. You know what? And it's so special when you can watch a film for the first time and you know it just demands conversation. And I know we're going to record and then we're going to stop and then we're going to keep talking about it. I think this film's going to keep coming up for us. I agree. But uh, before we get there, I do, you know, you always lead us in and and you talk to our audience about how we, you know, came up with the concept of this show and where, you know, and, and many times you always talk about the fact of this kind of was built from just we would have these long discussions after, you know, watching a movie and one day we were like, hey, let's record and, you know, more or less that's how we got here. (laughs) Um, But I have to say, one of our best episodes we did, um, we didn't record and it was just a few weeks ago. (laughs) Uh, We were at our friend's house um, and they live a little bit farther away. We left pretty late and we get home about one o'clock in the morning and from there (laughs) (laughs) we sat in our car for the next hour and a half just talking about Eyes Wide Shut. Just out in front of our house on the street just talking about this movie until 2.30 in the morning. You know, it sounds absurd, but if you've ever been locked in one of those conversations where if you know if you move, you're going to get distracted and kind of like the magic and shape of the conversation is totally going to be gone. That was that moment of like, no, we're in it. And we're going to keep talking about Eyes Wide Shut until <laughs> well, we're we got, done. like, real in-depth. Like, we were going deep into that movie. I mean, it was a great conversation. Really- and the mood was all set. We were just under this one lamp, like, light outside of our house, like, in the dark. And then there were, literally was a big, giant bat flying down a few times. Yeah, there was. There was a bat that kept buzzing your Jeep. And I'm like, what? <laughs> this is this is a Fidelio <laughs> omen, if I've ever seen one. I just, the next morning, I got up. And I'm like, we really sat up until 2.30. 30 and just talked about that movie out in the car. And you know what? I really wish we had been recording. (laughs) Me too. But I'm happy we are recording this one because I think you and I both have a lot to say about this film. Uh, So to give a little preamble, this film came out in 1975. We were talking about the film today, Cooley High. Um, It's about a group of friends who are living in Chicago in 1964. They're 17 years old, so they're in high school in that really strange moment in life where you are between adolescence and adulthood. It's about finding love and finding fun and the kind of, you know, misadventures along the way. It's about finding yourself. This is a film 
that it was a critical and a box office success. It was made for a shoestring budget of $750,000, which given that it was shot in a city is quite an accomplishment within itself. It made $13 million at the box office. This film appears on Spike Lee's list of 25 films you have to see if you are an aspiring filmmaker. So I have to ask, how could you not think Cooley High is one of the most influential high school films of all time? I think the answer to that is yes, and it's a true uh, question. You know, the question is true, and and I think over the next, you know, however long we're going to be talking, we're going to do our best to try to prove that point right. Um, and, and I think there's so many examples of why that's just a very true statement. Well, and I think, you or know... true question, yeah, I guess. True, yeah. <laughs> no, listen, I think our question is a statement within itself of, yeah. like, the implied here is, I mean, yes, you should think this is. I mean, you know, so obviously, I, you know, in the beginning of this, I said about Spike Lee. You know, Spike Lee is one of those filmmakers who is such an incredible nerd for film. Like, when he makes a list of things you, you should be watching, you want to pay attention to that list. And obviously, you and I are both massive, massive Spike Lee fans. And for Spike Lee to talk about films that influenced him, I think already puts this film in a really special category. And whether you have seen this film or not, if you're experiencing it for the first time via our conversation, or maybe for you, this is a beloved classic, like what you're going to hear or what you already know is that this movie has had ripple effects and you're going to hear things or you know things from this film that you're like, yeah, this has been incredibly influential, not only as a high school film or a film about that time in our life when we're in high school, but also the director of this film, Michael Schultz, the writer of this film, Eric Monti, their careers are massively influential, too, on pop culture. So the yeah. ripple effects of this film are unending. Yeah, I think you saying the ripple effect is just a great way, because it's like, maybe you've never seen Cooley High. Maybe you don't even know Cooley High. But I promise you, you know an influence of Cooley High. That's a great way. And that is such, an, it's such a strong point about this film. And yes, totally supports our how could you question. But I think it's... <laughs> I was going to say, I think this question today fits the question mark exclamation point of our... (laughs) (laughs) My grammatical nonsense makes sense. I do want to say, like with all of our movies on here, if you haven't seen these movies, we're going to be... There's going to be spoilers, so make sure, you know, if you haven't seen a movie and you're interested, go watch it before we start talking, because we're going to dive real deep into this one. Yeah, and it's for free on Tubi right now. You have to watch it with ads, but you can watch it for free. Every time you say Tubi, I just think of that weird, uh, like, 15-minute movie app that they tried to put out, like, a couple of years ago (laughs) that just failed miserably. (laughs) You know what? Everyone's trying to carve out their space in the streaming wars. That has to be one of the weirder attempts. It's the cliche of we only read headlines, so let's turn that into a movie, you know, format. (laughs) But hey, watch all your movies long form, including this one. You know, in starting to talk about this film, where we're going to talk a lot about throughout the film, the cast, the writer, the director. But there's one aspect of this film that's really fun to talk about right at the top, and that is this film has the most incredible soundtrack. It is essentially a Motown's who's who of soundtracks, and every single time a song starts in the movie, you're like, yes, thank you for picking that. You know, such luminaries as The Four Tops, Martha and the Vandellas, Stevie Wonder, Diana Ross and the Supremes. Smokey Robinson. Oh my gosh, Freddie Perrin. It's just such an incredibly well-curated soundtrack. Yeah, and Freddie Perrin, I'm glad you mentioned him, because, I mean, he curated this entire 
album. Uh, he wrote many of the songs for it. Um, I mean, so it, it, and like you talk about, we talk about like great high school films, and you always think about soundtracks. This is one of the best. I mean, right now I would have been like, let's redo our soundtrack episode, <laughs> yes, uh, so we can add this somewhere into that list. Right now I'm in a bidding war on eBay to try to get the vinyl of this. It's a it's a two vinyl, you know, four side, just just. Like you said, banger after banger. Like, it's so good. I really hope you win. Also, if you're listening to the show and you're a troll, please don't try and figure out a way to outbid him. Just let us add this one. But Why you, didn't I do the buy it now? You know, you brought up Freddie Perrin um, and the songs that he wrote for this. So one of the most famous songs from this, or maybe not necessarily even just for this film, but certainly the Afterlife as a song has, um, It's So Hard to Say Goodbye to Yesterday is a, a, a a song that occurs in this film at a really crucial point that we'll talk about. Freddie Perrin co-wrote that with his wife, Christina Yarian. Um, I It got to that moment, and the song played, and I went, oh, the Boys to Men song. And then I thought, you idiot, how did you not know that this was a cover? It's sung by uh, G.C. Cameron in the film, but I had no idea that that was not an original song by Boys to Men. How could you not know that Boys to Men made a Cooley High album? Well, and that... <laughs> Okay, so then this is the other insane thing. Like, massive Boys to Men fan, like, as a youth and still to this day. And I was like, oh, wow, their album's called Cooley High Harmony. And I, like, never had any idea. And it's just, like, those things that, like, sometimes, like, drift over your mind. And I can't say that I was ever a super nerd about artists and albums and, and, and reading the liner notes. But that's definitely one I miss. But this is such an incredible soundtrack. And, you know, I think you brought up in high school films, oftentimes I think that type of film gets so closely associated with, like, great soundtracks. And I think it's because you want the film to feel like the music that would be setting the tone of what it feels like to be a teenager and in that moment in time. So, like, the soundtracks have to follow suit. And I think sometimes that's successful. And I think sometimes that's money grabs. But this one is definitely... A very successful soundtrack. Yeah, I don't even know. Could you even make a film today and get a soundtrack like this? Like, it, it's incredible. Well, and they talked about that. Like, one of the reasons why they were able to get all of these songs, and these are, and when you all eventually watch the film, or if you're someone who has watched the film already, you're probably curious, like, hey, you said it was a small budget, but this seems like it'd be a massive music budget. The real reason was because at the time, um, Motown music rights were not like highly sought after by Hollywood films. So it was seen as an opportunity. So therefore they didn't have to pay a lot for the rights to this, this music. If you did that now, forget it. Right. Like that's a bygone <laughs> era. You right. need original music, honestly, because you can't, I think that the ability to curate this in the same way with like these heavy hitters, is just like not as feasible as it maybe once was or circumstantially was for this film. So, the soundtrack is but one part. Um, as we talk about this film, we're, we're going to kind of through, I think we've kind of broken this up into three sections of the yeah. film. Um, you know, so we're going to be talking about these characters, the setup. Um, this film is, opens up um, on, you know, a showing of a neighborhood. This neighborhood happens to be Cabrini Green in Chicago. This film was entirely shot on location, which is great and adds to, you know, nothing against studio films. I love splashy things that are, you know, on sound stages so you can really curate your lighting. 
But when you're trying to capture something about youthful vibrance, there's something about shooting on location that just feels so much more authentic to the space and lets it be a character within itself. Uh, Cabrini Green has a really interesting film history as a neighborhood. So you have Cooley High, it's incredibly important and landmark and influential film. Um, the film you might know Cabrini Green from if you've never seen Cooley High would be the original Candyman, yeah. um, you know, from the 80s. So if you've seen Candyman, you would know Cabrini Green from that because that is where Candyman takes place. Um, or if you've seen uh, the recent legacy sequel, Nia DaCosta's Candyman, um, which, was all, which also takes place in Cabrini Green. So... For another much longer podcast at a different time, there'd be a really cool way of tracing like the the presentation and the story of just that neighborhood in Chicago in film. What I love is you just mentioned about the fact of Cabrini Green and you know East Chicago become a character almost in and of itself, uh, and it was really important, obviously, to the filmmakers in this for this movie to make it that. And then you talk about Candyman in both iterations, and it the location so incredibly important and becomes its own character in those as well. So yeah, the fact that, you know, and this is supposed to take place in, even though the film was released in 75, it takes place in 1964. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. And so it's the writer and, and I believe both the director and writer grew up. Um, I know the writer, you know, grew Eric up. Monty, and, yeah, yeah. Grew up here, but I'm not sure. I can't remember about the director, but I do remember that. So Eric Monty, as we'll talk about a little bit later, um, you know, this is a deeply personal film, as I think a lot of writing projects can certainly be, without a doubt. Um, but, you know, he lived in this neighborhood. And one of the things I like about the film right at the beginning is, it's like, it's very clear that it's shot in Chicago, but not because you're seeing, you know, the Willis Tower and yeah. the beat. Like, you're yeah. seeing neighborhoods. And I think that adds to a sense of like of place because it's like it's about showing this neighborhood it's not about showing the metropolis of chicago where i think so many establishing shots in films that are set in city spaces they'll show the highlights so you really know where it's being filmed um but I, it's always so false yeah i agree you you open up with the supreme's baby love yeah and you enter right into this this uh space and and the whole first portion of the opening credits is uh, essentially like you said b-roll of chicago but it's a really great point that you bring up it's not just hitting these landmarks so you're like Oh, I know this and I know that, um, which I think is cool. Also, really interesting with this is they had to kind of fight to get this because the mayor did not want this movie shot there. Of course. <laughs> they actually ended up writing dummy, um, essentially, uh, pages oh, for no. the movie <laughs> to convince him to let them. <laughs> because, you know, I, it's like any, I would understand. Like, they just want to make sure that anything is presented in the best light. And the mayor went back and forth on whether, and so they created these dummy pages so that they could convince him to let them shoot there. And I'm really glad they did because, I, like you said, it's it's so important. And just from the opening credits, we need that. And you know, even the opening credits, I had a laugh because what did what did it remind you of those opening credits? 
Uh, it reminded me of the opening of like sitcoms in the seventies. Hundred percent. I, I really I wrote down Family Matters. Yeah. Um, because the <laughs> I font... said seventies, but hundred percent. Oh of yeah, I'm matters, sorry. So. Yeah, but I just yeah I just yeah. um you know sitcoms alone, but yeah I agree with you. The seventies to me it reminded me of Family Matters, which I believe takes place in Chicago. It does. Yeah. <laughs> it does yeah. Um, which almost essentially uses the same font. Which I again we're talking about these you know this ripple effect and there's another one of these influences that there's no way if you see that you don't see it and go, oh, they definitely are paying homage with those opening credits uh, to this film. Oh, without a doubt. Like, and, and it, you know, if I can do a deep dive on font at some, which you know I love talking typography. So, like, I will probably try and figure out if that was a direct influence. It's funny the story you say about the mayor because I just, you know, you, ha- you have to wonder, like, what was the motivation in the quote-unquote desire to show the city in, in in a good light? And I hope, like, the dummy scenes they wrote were like, we love our mayor. <laughs> right. you know? But, like, one of the things that Michael Schultz and, and Eric Monti were really committed to was the idea of showing and celebrating the Cabrini-Green neighborhood and not shying away from showing it as it is. And I think that's, like, such an important part of this because, you know, as we meet... Now, as we said at the beginning, this is a story about high school students. So we meet, um, you know, we meet Cochise, uh, who is one of our main characters. He is best friends with uh, Preach, and we'll talk about more about their characters, of course. But I think, like, showing the neighborhood, I think showing um, the spaces that they live in, I think showing all of the ways in which life operates in the space and is celebrated in the space, the sense of community and connection, I don't know how you can't be supportive of that being filmed. Except I wondered the politics at play that would have made a mayor at that time concerned about shooting a film at Cabrini Green, which is like, and, and you realize like why this is like so important, like that this space is like so celebrated in the way in which it is in the film. Um, but we open up on Preach and Cochise. What do you make of their dynamic if you had to describe them? That these are two best friends that are perfectly going to encapsulate what it feels like to be on this verge of being a senior and moving on to this next portion of your life. Coach Heese is somebody that is like, he's the coolest and, you know, best athlete in your school that everybody loves. Yeah. And then uh, you have Preach, who is this really amazing individual with so much, you know, going for him, and he's just kind of caught in this weird place of this change of high school to this maturity of being an adult that he's getting ready for. No, it's a totally great way of describing it, because I think, like, with Cochise, there's, like, the potential is obvious where he's going, because eventually you find out he has received a college scholarship to play basketball. He's both gifted academically and athletically. You know, but Preach is a little bit more complicated because he is someone who is a scholar, but also someone who doesn't want to commit to the academic space of high school, probably because he is the exact kind of kid who is so advanced beyond high school, but just needs to do that perfunctory thing of graduating to be able to go out in the world. Because I think like his potentiality is so much more wide open, whereas Cochise's is so much more defined. Yeah. And I think also with Preach is what he's aspiring to is a little more, it's not a straight path. Yes. Um, There's there's a lot more complication. There's a lot more unknown about it. Well, exactly, because like if you are going, and listen, this is not to say certainly that there is a hard road in being a college athlete without a doubt, (laughs) but I think like 
you go to college as an athlete, there's some built in things and community and kind of there's a trajectory, right? You go out into the world because you want to be a writer. There's not exactly one path and there's not exactly like one way to do that. And I think like the great thing about having them play off of each other is because I think it ends up speaking to so many of those experiences of being in that liminal space between adolescence and adulthood and and the person that seems like maybe they have a plan and together and the other person who doesn't have a plan, but also is like kind of starting to creep past in terms of like advancing outside of that space. It's like a really interesting dynamic. And, you know, Cochise is so, so incredibly well played by Lawrence Hilton Jacobs. If you open up his IMDb, he has 92 different (laughs) credits across a wide variety of television, including, you know, the incredibly landmark roots. But the thing you probably know him from is his role as Freddie Boom Boom Washington on Welcome Back, Cotter. Welcome Back, Cotter, totally and completely stole their opening credits from this film. You can't convince me otherwise. It's literally the same. Stole the actor, stole the credits. Yes. And I also, like, it's, if you've seen Lawrence Hilton um, Jacobs in this film or anything else, what you know is this, Welcome Back Cotter totally underutilized him because he has an ease to his comedic timing that is so cool and feels so incredibly natural and springs from somewhere like, just such an incredible light presence in this film like and and I just want to see him in a thousand more things he's incredible you know kind of this opening what I think this first 20 minutes is really interesting um because not really much happens okay I have a comment to that do you have you ever seen the documentary high school I have not okay there's a documentary in the 1950s called high school and what it was was it was a camera crew that just went into a high school and filmed like Film nerd. Um, (laughs) Sorry. Uh, Teacher nerd, film nerd. (laughs) All of it's coming out right now. But it just, like, filmed, like, different, like, I don't even want to say vignettes, because it was just, like, essentially, like, a really, like, just... The camera would be, like, in classroom spaces and then, like, in a gym space and then a cafeteria space, and it's kind of, like, landmark at, like, presenting just, like, a day in the life of a high schooler. That is so much what the opening of this film reminds me of. It's like kind of nothing happens, and that's the point. Like, you're just to get to know them as they would be naturally going about their day. Yeah. Is uh, that what you were going to say? I'm so no, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm agreeing with you because I, I that was this interesting thing. As I'm watching it for a first time, I'm going, oh, okay, this is a little different. There's not really much happening. And I mean, we've seen that before, again, high school films. Days to Confuse is, is again, we're talking about that ripple effect, pulling probably a lot from this, um, because it's very much in that same light, but it's like, we're just following these, this group of kids and, and friends, and what I think is, like, so great about this, and what it doesn't, you don't understand until later and it hits you is like this is so important because what it's allowing you to do is just travel with these friends Mm -hmm. and feel like you're part of the friend group agreed yeah like you just end up feeling this like bond with them like that you're kind of running around and you're jumping on the back of buses which evidently was a thing in like new york city and chicago during this time where kids would do that like they just jump on the back of buses i've heard my dad talk about that did he really Mm -hmm. and then it made me think again we're again i know we're going to use this a lot, the ripple effect, Back to the Future. It made me go right to Back to the Future and Marty McFly on the back of the trucks and stuff. Well, and it's so great because, like, when they're in their high school space, and what I love about this is because it is so much like an opening that just celebrates, like, 
the dynamic of the friendships and it's about like, you know, because I kind of like that, like preach is a little bit of a scamp, like he's clever and like they figure it's not hard for them to figure out a way to like ditch school. It's not. Would you have fell, fell for the bloody nose trick? Okay. That teacher is so nonplussed by the bloody nose because she's so wrapped up in reading the code of conduct. It made me so angry. Like, here's the thing. I consider myself a sensitive and compassionate educator, but I would have been like, yeah, that's stupid. There's no way you're leaving the classroom. You're fine. Like, I would have been so, I would have called that so quickly, but it's. Although, like, if there's a former student listening to us, they're probably like, no, Tossie, we pulled, like, a lot of stuff on you, you never realized. But, like, she's so unaffected by it. And what I like about that is because, like, look, I'm a high school educator, but not every day is a home run. And, like, some days it's more about the connections you're making with your friends than what academically is happening in a classroom. And there's nothing really happening in that classroom. So it's, like, really understandable why they want to escape and go have this adventure. And I think the fact, like, kind of the joy of them how they're able to get out of the high school, the jumping onto the back of the bus, the passengers like looking back at them. Yeah. Like there's something so joyful about that. And like, there's no sense of like, what's bad to skip school. No, it's important to do things with your friends, man. Yeah. And like, I think all of this builds to why we, once the story really picks up and once we start following all that, we care so much, right? Like, we, we again, we feel really bonded with them. And I think, I don't know if every film could pull off what they do here, uh, but I think it works so amazing. Like, it, I think they just do it so perfectly. Um, I, I mean, we go, what, to the zoo? Because yes. there's a one point I'm like, what are we watching? They're like, like, Talk, trying to talk to this gorilla, and the gorilla's, like, flinging poo at them. <laughs> I know. Dude. Poor pooter. Pooter. Can I tell you, every group has a pooter. Oh, and if yeah. you're like, no, my, no, mine didn't, you're the pooter. Like, pooter's the... He seems younger than them significantly. Like, he... There's just something about him that re... I, I don't want to say... It's not immature. Just, like, a little bit more little sibling variety is how he seems. And I don't know if he's supposed to be a grade below them, but it's definitely how it seems. It's how it came across. And, and I apologize. I agree with you. I don't know if it's mentioned, but it, to me, it came across as that sophomore hanging out with, the like, the seniors. Yeah, like, cool enough to hang, yeah. but not quite there yeah, yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And eventually, he's going to take over. He's going to be them in a couple of years. I don't know if somebody named Pooter is ever like the head of your high school no, I group. Think, I think, yes, I think you do because I think that's a little bit where we get to at the end. You think I'm bit. sleeping on Pooter here? I think so. <laughs> uh, Pooter, who was played by Corin Rogers, um, you know, one thing that's really interesting about this cast is uh, they they fill uh, they casted a lot of people from mm -hmm. this area and yes. Chicago. They wanted to have this have a really authentic cast and look and um, with having these people that live in this area. And so the the casting call went out to the locals, and you can see it throughout the mm -hmm. film. Um, and I think that's a again really speaks to it. And some of these actors go on to do bigger things. Some of them, this is kind of where you know it ends. Which I know um, the casting director, I guess, felt really guilty about for a long oh, wow. time because you know they went and they got a lot of amateur actors and unknowns, and you're like, well, you're going to be in this big budget film, and you cast them, and people hope it's their break, right? And mm -hmm. it does doesn't end up playing out that way for a good portion of the cast. Um, and so she felt 
guilty as the years went on, you know, not being able to see these people go on to, to do bigger things. But, and it's interesting because it's other like, things, it's I guess I should say. A credit to the casting director of having the, that talent to find talent because like, to me, it would be almost impossible to completely define if I didn't know who some of these actors were, who were the professional actors and who were the people hired in, because it all feels so naturalistic. Like, I love, you know, when they're on their way to Lincoln Park Zoo, they stop um, at that hot dog stand. And even all of that, I, I mean, honestly, it feels so natural and the chemistry is so incredible that, like... I, and I, th- I have to think that that hot dog attendee was not like was not a, a, a real actor, was probably someone yeah. who worked at that hot dog stand near Lincoln Park Zoo. And like even that moment feels so great. So I'm totally with you. Like and I get the guilt about it, but there are plenty of actors from this who went on to do incredible things. Um, Glenn Turman being you know, who plays Preach being paramount to that. Um, you know, I'll just I'll list some things. Super 8, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, <laughs> The Way Back. Gremlins, how Stella got her groove back, and like a hundred other things that he appeared in. Colonel Taylor um, on A Different World. Yes! Um, For our Wire fans, he was Mayor Royce. Yep. Uh, For our um, Gronkowski and Tom Brady fans, he was in 80 for Brady recently. (laughs) Oh my god, that's right, he is in 80 for Brady. (laughs) No, I mean, uh, Glenn Turman is definitely an an actor you know. Um, He's done some amazing things. Really interesting. I thought you he got first notice because at 12 years old, he was in, in 1959. He was in uh, Raising in the Sun as Travis Younger, uh, opposite Cindy Portier and Ruby D. I knew you were. <laughs> oh, my God. He's Travis. First off, I'm about to cry because like so one of the things. So I teach a Raisin in the Sun every single year. Mm-hmm. And we watched the film adaptation that stars Sidney Poitier and Ruby Dee because it's the original Broadway cast. So what you're telling me is I've been watching Preach and obviously also Glenn Turman, who I know from a thousand other things. I had no idea that was him. I can't speak to what you saw. What I can tell you is when he was he was on the original broad he was with the original Broadway. That is incredible. Uh, company for that. that. Yeah. Oh, that is. Whew. The other so interesting incredible. thing is um, Glenn Herman also auditioned for a role, Mr. Han Solo for George Lucas, who George Lucas allegedly has said essentially that he was very, very close to being cast. Um, you know, obviously Harrison Ford is Harrison Ford, but I get Glenn Herman uh, jokingly said to George Lucas after Lucas confirmed this to him, yeah. uh, said, so you're telling me Harrison Ford has my career. <laughs> Which, I mean, like, I am sure, like, you you know, we talk about sliding dorms moments. I'm sure yeah. that there's a real case for that. And honestly, seeing him in this, I completely get it. And he would have made an incredible Han Solo. Yeah, I agree completely. That would have been a really, <laughs> be really cool. entertaining thing. Uh, it's actually funny. If you've started following Francis Ford Coppola, who is new to Instagram, he actually just put up a thing mm-hmm. that Francis Ford Coppola claims that he was the inspiration for Han Solo. <laughs> he In that picture that he posted, he looked a little more like Chewie than he did <laughs> Han Solo. Like, I was like, what's your case here, man? <laughs> like... Um, but that's great. I mean, like, that's, you know, and so this opening is fun. And then, like, as we start to get into, like, I would say where it starts being driven a little bit by plot. But I do still think maintains, and I think something this film does throughout, 
it really maintains two things. One, the spirit of just following teenagers as they are driftless, but in, only in that driftless way you are when it's you're a teenager and you're just hanging out with your friends and it's just kind of like whatever happens next in a really fun way. Um, but we, you know, we get to Martha's. Martha's is the hangout because I think at some point someone determined that all teenage groups must have a hangout. <laughs> Theirs is Martha's. What was yours? We didn't have one. You just I said everyone think. was supposed to have one. Uh, I, I mean, I left you hanging out to dry on that one. <laughs> I, I'm going to tell you. So here is the thing. I would say I'm actually I'm going I'm to correct myself here. Um, my friends and I went to the B Town Diner a lot. Uh, so Bethlehem Diner, we called it the B Town Diner. Um, and Carmike, like that's what we did when Friday nights. We like hung out at Carmike. If there wasn't a football game, we went to Carmike, which is the movie theater we met at. So like you know. <laughs> And then I hung out there a lot more once I started working there, you know. Um, but I, I like the spirit of Martha's, like, the music's playing. There's, like, um, you know, there's dancing. Martha, for some reason, always has a meat cleaver in her hand, which I'm not really able to get a sense of why that is. Because people are just gambling, playing craps in the back halls. Like. Oh, oh, my gosh. My favorite needle drop in the entire film is the silence, the roll of the dice, and stop in the name of love, oh. blaring from the jukebox. That meat cute. Fantastic. Shut up. Because, oh, wait, no, don't shut up. I didn't mean it like that. I meant, like, shut up in the nice way. Um, I mean, this is going to be a really weird podcast. <laughs> um, Brenda. So, Brenda is, so this is, like, the really fun thing that this film does. The film does not obsess over explaining all of the relationship dynamics. So, Preach and Cochise are both dating people. Um, they have... What I think you're to understand is either girlfriends or, you know, casual people that they date. But then, like, Brenda enters the scene and something, like, very much changes. Like, first up, she's, like, you know, like, knockout gorgeous. Um, and she, what I absolutely love about her character is she is, like, not easily won. Like, this meet cute is not, like violins are playing and she's totally obsessed with preach like it is not that like she is someone that is not does not seem like she needs the attention of any of the males around her to feel totally comfortable in a space and i think that is like such a great way in a film that to be honest is really not about its female characters this really is about male friendship yeah. um it really is at the heart of this and i don't say that as a knock at the film by any means you know some films are going to be kind of gendered one way or another and i think this film is definitely like is more male centric but i do think they write a strong character with brenda i do think they give her agency and purpose within the film that although she's not featured in every scene, I think her presence is strong when she's in a scene. Yeah, I agree. I think they're the female characters to me are written really well um, and excellent, like you said, for the film, however, underutilized. I, I think I agree completely. Brenda, played by Cynthia Davis. Yes. Uh, essentially her only real role, and I don't know why. Um, I don't know why either. <laughs> she's so good in this. I mean, we should ask. I mean, yeah, I think she, I agree with you. I think she's so talented. She's so amazing on the screen. I, she's her chemistry with Preach. Oh my um, gosh. Her and Glenn Herman, their their chemistry is amazing. I think the whole chemistry of the entire cast oh, yeah. is 
like you were talking about the casting director, like kudos to her because uh, the cast that they put together is amazing and is, is the power of the entire movie. Um, but Cynthia Davis really should have had a bigger career. I don't know what ends up happening. I didn't do a deep dive on I that. I do so. know what ends up happening. Oh, okay. She ends up becoming a theater director in Chicago. Oh, okay. All right, cool. Yeah. Um. So she stayed within the arts, but this yeah. is her only IMDb credit. Um. And she's great. And, you know, her pairing with Preach, you almost could see a version of this if she had stayed a film actress of, like, them meeting up in other films because the chemistry is almost just too good to not cast them against each other in things like, you know, it's kind of like great rom-com pairings of actors that like, you know, like, you know, George Clooney and Julia Roberts often get like, like placed alongside of each other because there's just like, there's something natural and like how they interact with each other on screen. That's like so electric. And I think you could have totally seen that with them. Um, but yeah, she's not, that's really it for her. And, and like, that's the other great thing about this too, is like the film does such a nice job of like, not feeling like it needs to over-explain, like, how everyone is connected within the film. Like, just in the great way in which when you're a teenager, it's like, I don't know, you just, like, move in and out. Like, yeah, you got a best friend, but you, like, move in and out of friend groups. You're going to Martha's. You're going to a quarter party later on. Like, although, uh, granted, they're not on the guest list at first, <laughs> but, you know. And I think well, that... they couldn't figure out why they weren't on the guest list. Okay, I was actually or really... Was, oh, no, I think it was because they didn't have the money. They didn't have quarters. Yeah. Because, so this was... So it was a quarter party, so you had to pay a quarter to get in, which I think is great, and we should uh, we should do. Um, <laughs> I just... I, I like coins. I don't know why. I just got obsessed with collecting coins. This economy, coins. can we at least do it like a dollar party? <laughs> no, coins are more fun. Um... But, you know, you have that kind of setup at Martha's, um, and then it's really, like, it doesn't cut to the quarter party. It's still, like, they're, they got to go home, they got to interact with family, they got to make out with people in stairwells. <laughs> like, you know, um, I do have to say, um, shout out to the production design of capturing something that I think is very true and real. I don't know what it is about the 70s, 80s, or 60s, 70s, 80s, and I think this even creeps into 90s. Like, did every house have that Jesus painting in it? Because it's the same Jesus painting, and I think in the same frame in, like, every house. I went to so many houses that had that Jesus painting. <laughs> Just me? I, I, guess, I mean, I, you know, I know what you're talking about. You know what I'm talking yeah. about, though, right? Like, everybody had that Jesus painting. I feel like the story picks up once we get to the houses, back to the house. Yes. After, you know, we've sat with them during their skip day. Um, we meet Jimmy Lee, who comes up later in very odd parts. Oh, my gosh. And so Jimmy Lee, who's played by uh, Stephen Williams, who, if you are a fan of It, he's Leroy in It. If you watch the TV show Supernatural, he's Rufus in Supernatural. He's on Yellowstone, uh, which I know is super popular right now. He's on Blackish, True Detective. He's Virgil in The Leftovers. Like, Listen. Everybody listens, listening knows him from 21 Jump Street, okay? Oh, my God. <laughs> so you're like... He ran <laughs> that entire operation. I'm going to be honest with you. As I was listening them, you were giving me this look of like, how'd she not say this first? I knew I was missing something. So and for our horror you. fans, he was Jason Goes to Hell as well. <laughs> you said it was for our horror fans, and then you said Jason Goes to Hell. What are you doing? <laughs> but Jimmy Lee is a whole different character. Who He's, he's fun. <laughs> is one of the few characters in this movie and pieces that I will tell you, you could pull out and it would be, the nothing would change. But there are just moments that are just so good, too. Like, but I was just thinking about the parts that he plays, and I'm like, he doesn't really serve a purpose in the movie. But don't you remember at that time in your life where there were people who were totally, like, inconsequential to your existence, but they just were kind of floating around? 
It's Jimmy Lee. Yeah, he's Cochise's uncle. Yes. Uh, so when you're back at the house, then he gets his, ex- this is where he gets his acceptance letter to yes. Grambling uh, on the basketball scholarship. Uh, we get to meet the families. Um, we get to see Preach and, and you know, with his family. Uh, yeah, I think it just starts to build from here of, of where we're going to go with this story. Well, and also, and I, I didn't obviously know this on the, the first time we watched this, but there's also, these are the events that start to have consequence towards the finale of the film, which you don't know. And I think that's, so I was listening to, there is a, a podcast, and I've only listened to, at this point, um, one episode. Um, it's called The Michaud Mission. Um, so two uh, film obsessives like us, uh, Len Webb and Vince Williams, are on a mission to watch every uh, black film that has ever been released. And then they record a podcast about it, and they talk about, um, they have like fun categories with this. And one of the things that they said in their episode about Cooley High that I I didn't think about and and now I can't stop thinking about is that the film, as fun as it is, there is a melancholy presence throughout the entirety of it once you know the ending yes. of the film. Oh my gosh, yes, that's perfect. And I went, you're right, because I'll, I will not, the second time we watch this film, which I have a feeling we're going to do very soon, the second time we watch I'm not going to watch it the same way. Mm-hmm. And and part of it is I think about it, I'm like, yeah, and that starts at the party, because the party is the it becomes not to bring up a ripple effect again, but it's the ripple effect to everything that happens. Yes, you're completely right. I, so I was gonna say the alleyway starts to be this, but you're, you're right. not wrong it's about that. Really, alleyway. the the party is what the ripple effect of where we get to the ending, and that is such a really. I, I didn't think about that, but it's so true because mm-hmm. the way I watched this movie, um, and this is why I was kind of saying at the beginning, like if you haven't watched it, watch it because we're gonna start getting into this end. I had no idea that this ending would happen, no. and, and you know we'll talk about it more in depth. But like that ending is is as shocking an ending to me as I've had um, that sat with me in just a really sad way, um, and it's all earned. And like you said, it's because of how it builds, and and it builds because you don't expect it. Um, But it doesn't feel like it comes out of nowhere either, because everything builds. And and you see this domino effect and going back, uh, and that's such an interesting way that, oh, it makes me almost sad in some ways to go, oh, I'm going to go back and rewatch this movie, and I'm going to see it more, uh, because I do have so much fun with these characters. I love these characters. I love being with them. I love feeling like I'm one of their friends and, and kind of trying to get into the quarter party or you know being in the alleyway and drinking the wine and you know this is where we get that important line of you know pouring one out for the dudes that aren't here oh uh, my gosh says yeah Um, well and because it's also like the sense of like oh like you don't want to think about that of an adolescent person who's already had to experience death like that's not fun to think about mm -hmm. like I mean it's like so natural I mean of course like none of us are going to get through this without our bruises but like you also don't like hearing young people talk about that but that was when I was listening to that podcast I was just like oh my gosh that's so right like there is there's this melancholy presence that is just like it's it's not it's not oppressive to the film but it's definitely there um so check that out the michaud mission the reason for the name of it is um based on the director oscar michaud who was the first uh black director um he's incredible his his work his work is like free to watch on youtube i hope it like it screens every once in a while places um but yeah i thought that was like such a good way of describing it uh we get to the uh, but like Back to the fun, if we can, like yeah. you know. The, yeah, yeah, as we set you up to be like, 
it gets to a place where it's not fun. Yeah. But, <laughs> but the quarter party is so great. Thrown by Dorothy. Okay. I have to say, two seconds into the quarter party, I clocked Loretta and I went, Loretta's up to some shit. And she was bad. <laughs> Loretta's a problem. <laughs> so, like, you know, so, like, one of the things is, is, like, I think you said this earlier, like, preaches easy to love and clearly um, desired um, by a, he he turns heads he's handsome he's charming he's talented he's gifted in so many ways and like you see him earlier with a, another girl um, and then he's at this party um, and and he catches the eye of Loretta um, Loretta um, has a boyfriend <laughs> Damon. <laughs> Damon, who shows up to the party, um, and then the party kind of gets overturned by a fight related to Loretta. And I was like, I don't know why, I was very proud of myself because there was something about Loretta. I was like, oh, Loretta, I think I, <laughs> I think there's going to be something, something not okay with Loretta. But my favorite part in the entire party sequence is this, is when the fight breaks out over Loretta between Damon and Preach, and like a lot of people kind of get thrown into this. There's just one girl who is sitting on the couch eating chips. And I'm like, <laughs> yes. I'm going to enjoy That's the drama. <laughs> yes, I'm going to enjoy the drama and eat my snacky. And I'm going to wait for this to clear out. I love that choice so much because that would be me in that situation. Yeah, I, we get two major things in this party, uh, which I love. Again, I love the party. It feels like we're part of the party. Yes. Like It feels like yeah. we're just walking through the room. Poor Dorothy's trying to just put on a good time, but she's got to worry about them breaking everything. <gasps> oh, my gosh, yeah, when they're, like, leaning on the furniture, and I'm like, yeah. I'm with you. Um, so we have two things going on here that are going to play very, you know, as you talked about, the... Cochise ends up, you know, basically dancing and and trying to pick up a girl he shouldn't who had a, a boyfriend. She could have been more deliberate. <laughs> this is not Cochise. Do you think fault. that would have stopped him? No, I don't I think, think he's so. Charming. No, no like, we all again, we all had that that person we know that was just suave and like everybody <laughs> had a good like everybody wanted to hang out with and just could go up and talk to. Uh, a girl or a guy, and they people swooned over yeah. that. <laughs> but I think swooning is, like, a good word to use here because it's, like, hard not to with him. And, like, and I also think, like, one of the things that I think Michael Schultz as a director does is you're talking about, like, feeling a part of the party is it's all about, like, feeling interior. Like, when you're in the alleyway with them, there's something, like, kind of intimate about this. This party feels like you're inside of it in so many ways. And I think this is something that really continues throughout the film is, like, you really feel interior to these spaces. But I also think in Eric Monti's writing, the thing that's done here, again, it's that reminder of these are kids. Yeah, he's not married to that girl he was making out with in the stairwell, so he can make out with Loretta because it's like you're trying to remember the stakes of what it was to be a teenager and that... Yeah, you drift from, like, person to person. Yeah, hearts and get broken. Yeah, you just kind of... That's what it is. Like, you know, so I like I like that that's highlighted I here, do, too. We, you know, because of our question here and talking about the influences, another one that, you know, this is Loretta Brown, who plays this this character that's on yeah. the, the couch that is kind of starts this domino effect of where we go to. But Erica Badu uh, one time created an alter ego for herself. DJ Lowdown Loretta Brown. Shut up. That she took from this 
This character just took this character. Actually, the coolest <laughs> yeah, that's thing. That's only pretty much in this scene and created yeah. her own alter ego from it. So That's actually really yeah. cool. <laughs> what a great connection. The other major thing we have at this moment is, although I guess we should also say uh, Kochi's definitely won the fight. Like <laughs> Damon sucks. All right, Damon sucks for a lot of reasons yes. upcoming, but Damon is like such a weasel because he wants to be Cochise and he's not. Yeah, Cochise. exactly, exactly. Yeah. But what we also have happening at this party is Preach trying to, you know, win over Brenda. I know. And what I really like about this, this to me is this cool moment with Preach's character because he's essentially trying all these like moves and pickups with her. Yeah. And in fact, he has this one line that I wrote down because I just thought it was great because he says, "I just haven't come up with the." right lie yet that's all <laughs> please tell me you said that to a female at some point in high school <laughs> but what may what i love about it is so brenda's not taking any of his advances no. until he just is himself i know it's such a beautiful once moment. he just opens up and he just starts talking about his poetry and and it's a good juxtaposition because we have the alleyway where his friends are making fun of him for it. And he gets really hurt by it. He does. Like, really crushed by it. Because this is his art. This is what... This is what he has. Like, we all have something, right? And this is what he has. And then his friends kind of mock him for it. So then you move into the party, and he finally opens up with her and just starts talking the poetry, and she instantly takes yeah. to him from there. And they have this yeah, commonality. And there's a really, like, beautiful decision here, like, how the lighting is in this room, because it feels mm-hmm. so dissimilar from the party, and I agree with you, because it's, like, it's almost like this lesson that I think Eric Monty is trying to teach, like, teenagers of, like, the best thing you can be is your the most authentic version of yourself, the truest version of yourself, and that's like actually what makes you special. And like I think that's such like an enduring lesson to take in that moment because and not because he gets the girl, but because like that's when Brenda most reacts to him because he's taken the artifice down. And preach preach is charming too. Different than Cochise, it's a little bit more like again, like it's a little bit more of a scamp, but a really charming scamp yes. at that. And like <laughs> And so I think the fact that that moment happens is really incredible. And then, you know, this, it's interesting. We go from this party sequence, which is so great, um, into a scene that I thought would have no consequence. I'll, I'll be honest. Again, this is a scene where I went... This is just, it's its for fun. It's for the, the experience of being a teenager. This scene is never going to come up again because there's so many people you see throughout the film who you'll see in a scene and they will, like you talked about Loretta, and then you don't see them again. So um, Preach and Cochise leave the party and outside are Stone and Robert. Stone and Robert, we see them earlier um, in Martha's uh, when, we're, when they're throwing dice and they have like a really, really nice Cadillac and they decide to go on a ride and... That is, like, such the experience of being a teenager is just, like, kind of hopping in a friend's car and riding around in the city. And it's a really fun scene. Um, it's it's a great... They end up getting into a little bit of a chase with the cops. Um, a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, 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 right. Stone and Robert, uh, Stone played by Sherman Smith, yes. Robert uh, Norman Gibson, we're supposed to know that these characters are a little bit more... They've gotten into more trouble over mm. time. Um 
these two guys were cast. Um, they were playing basketball, and literally they pulled up with a white limo and went up to them in this thing because they just thought that they were going to have this look that they were looking for and this and again trying to cast people from the neighborhood and yeah. they're so good in this yeah they really are like really I didn't know I didn't know they were an actress because so like yeah. when we were prepping for this I was just kind of looking at the main characters IMDb's just to see like what they were in so I didn't go that deep um, that's a really interesting story well they end up the actors end up having some, unfortunately, not, you know, you know, and this is, goes back to what we talked about with, you know, some of these actors, you know, just they thought this was going to be their big, you know, break. It doesn't work out. Yeah. And that's tough. That's tough to come back from. And, and they get themselves into trouble. And, um, you know, one of the gentlemen still today, now he's got himself, you know, kind of back where he talks and does a lot of appearances. Oh, Unfortunately, well, the other gentleman was killed. I would say, because yeah, so. actually that part of it, I think I saw, he was shot. Yes, right? yeah. yes. Um, it's, you know, and the, the thing about the scene, and I think why that plays well is like, because there is like an, like, again, like that, that mixture of having, you know, um, seasoned actor, actors or people who are like, you know, studying their craft against people who live in the neighborhood like there's such like an like an incredible like vibrancy that I think is created within that and you know you have this what to me you know felt like this very like funny chase sequence with the cops it's really hilarious they're like out running they well, it's got like almost a Benny Hill type vibe to it right yes because the score's totally different during that moment and you're like oh my like this is hilarious that this is happening and then like there is this like you're like, okay, well, like, where, like, where is this going? What's going to happen? And, like, and again, I wasn't seeing any, like, tragic turns for this film, so I was able to just enjoy the scene and think it was, like, so fun. And they get away. Like, they outsmart the cops, It's it, which is uh, amazing. And that's, like, what you want to see in a teen movie is, like, no consequences <laughs> to, like, what's happening. But it's, like, it's... It's this big set piece that feels like it comes out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, and I think, again, we, we talk so much about the directing and the writing, and that's, again, this is one of those scenes that's... Because I agree completely with you. It is a fun scene. Yeah. Um, everybody looks like they're almost having a good time. Yeah. It's, there's there's laughs put to it. Um, you know, Glenn Herman actually drove the car. Oh, that's right. And great. was, yeah. like, a really good driver, but the other actors didn't know. <laughs> so at one point, uh, Robert actually yells out, Glenn, slow down in the scene. Shut you up. can hear. That's <laughs> it doesn't great. say That's preach, so, so he says the actor's name. Um, you know, you have the funny, the cops sliding down the poles trying to catch up with him. So you great. have the guy, once they get yeah. into the accident, getting out of the car yelling whiplash. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yes. That part made me die. It's just like whiplash, whiplash. Yeah. And and I was like thinking to myself, I was like, this is this is just so like it's so funny and it's so like over dramatic. And it's also like I think the other thing this film does like a really nice job of again, it like it's so focused on adolescence that like oftentimes the adults seem witless or kind of like with the exception of one adult, which we'll get to, mm. seem witless or ineffective. Um Wait, hold on. I'm going to correct myself. Two adults, because there's, like, a, a teacher present and a parent present that I think are pretty crucial to the film, like, later on. But it's, like, that kind of, like, how you feel about authority figures when you're a teenager of, like, oh, we can outsmart them. Like, this is not, like, our, you know, it's just, it's a really, it's a fun scene. Yeah. And, like you said, you don't realize the effect that it's going to have. But I think this speaks to... Kids in high school. Like, I don't want to oh, start yeah. sounding like old man here, but, like, when you have hindsight and you look back, like, right? Like, we do things as kids for fun. You mean no, nothing bad by it, right? Yeah. But it's like, 
how far do you go? Do you take that and you go a little too far and there are some yeah. major consequences? Or is it just little fun that you get to 20 years later, joke with your friends about it and go, oh, remember when we did that? Like, and this is one of those perfect moments. Like, the four of them mean no real harm. They're just trying to have fun. But this will end up turning into a series of consequences because of mistakes that they make. And it's it's littered throughout this movie. But I don't think it's trying to beat you over the head with a message necessarily either. I think it's just trying to speak to being a kid and having fun and that maybe sometimes things shouldn't be taken too seriously, but then sometimes you have to be aware. Well, and you also think about, like, in youth, you're on this what feels like a razor's edge between those two realities. The, this gets to be a funny story. Story, or this becomes something that defines my life. Mm-hmm. Like, and that razor's edge is like so well balanced here. Because even if you think about the scenes that follow this, you know, the next day, um, I think they're at is it Cochise's house, and it's his little brother. Yes. Okay. So it's Cochise's house, and it's his little brother. And I have to say, they're so they're studying for this like test that has been mentioned. I think it's a history test, if I remember correctly. I apologize as. As a terrible student and not a teacher, I did not write that down in my notes. No one shocked. Okay. <laughs> it, it, it's not shocking that this was more important to me to remember. But but it's like this funny thing is they're all talking about like they have to study for this test. They want to do well, like, and, and they're talking about it. But they also want to go to the movies. And so there's like this interaction back and forth of like what they should do. But my favorite is, is that the little brother's in the room <laughs> and the little brother, like, they're, like, yelling at him to get out, and he's like, this is my room, you guys get out. And then he starts throwing firecrackers yes. at them. And I have never seen, a, like, we just did an episode about E.T., and I and I espoused how much I love Gertie and, and her little sister energy, but there has never been better little sibling energy than I'm going to throw firecrackers with you, <laughs> knowing there are no consequences to my actions. It's such a great and hilarious moment. You know, so you have that, and then, you know, they go outside and they need money to go to the movies. So Preach pretends to be a cop and shakes down some prostitutes for money using a Lone Ranger badge. And this is where it's going to sound like a weird transition, but I think this is where it's important to talk about the writer of this film, Eric Monti. And mainly because that Lone Ranger badge seems like a great moment of comedic effect and pop culture reference, like in that moment. Um, It's a hilarious interaction. Um, And it's again, it's one of these just kind of like misadventures of youth sequences. Yeah, I like you saying the misadventure thing, because I think, again, it's one of those things that you're like, it's really not a good thing. that No, it's not so wrong. But at the same token, I don't think it's like in their head, it's not malintention as much. Like they think it's okay to do. Which is wrong. Yeah, it's wrong. (laughs) But I also like that the movie doesn't paint these these you know the the sex workers as necessarily bad people like, no, yeah. like you empathize like you actually yeah, yeah. empathize with them you yes. like well these poor ladies got taken advantage of well and that's the thing is is like and again like I think it's all about approaching everyone who lives in a neighborhood space and approaching them with like non judgment like we're all just trying to live our lives and like for these sex workers and like she talks about she's just been recently in prison and she doesn't yeah. want to have to go back and like you're like oh come on guys don't steal money from her that's like not cool and it's like and and again like i you know we're not trying to play morality piece and say that you should be supportive of that trade but at the same time like you can have empathy for them as human beings as well who are just trying to live their life and make money and i think you're going to talk about monty eric monty here in a second and i think that's what he's trying to do like he's trying to just show this this 
your city yes. and these people of they're all one they're all kind of working together yeah. they're all just in the city living in the same space together well and i think it's like it, it's trying to harken back you know because this came out in the 70s and it's trying to harken back to like the idea of like how you know kind of like everyone's raised by the community that you live in right like there's like this shared responsibility and you know certainly with like you know setting this in chicago and setting this in the neighborhood of cabrini green like eric monte who grew up in Cabrini Green, you know, it was of paramount importance for him to communicate something about the black experience of living in Cabrini Green that was not seen in film and in in a really like, you know, important and also incredibly like disheartening moment. He was as a kid, he was outside and he was playing at being the Lone Ranger because, you know, that, that's the serial that he was watching and like or experiencing. And he was playing at being the Lone Ranger. An adult came up to him and said, you can't be the Lone Ranger. The Lone Ranger is white. And he went to his mom and said, Mom, I want to be a writer because I want to see black heroes. Like, that is something he said to his mom from a young age. And so, like, it's an interesting nod that the Lone Ranger um, sheriff's badge is something that appears in this mm-hmm. moment. But, like, what, you know... Eric Monty was addressing is looking at the scope of media at this moment and something that, you know, ripple effects for decades and decades beyond. He didn't feel like his neighborhood was being seen. He didn't think that films that were communicating about black communities were doing so with the type of heart and and realism and celebration of how he wanted to celebrate his neighborhood of Cabrini Green. he ends up hitchhiking to Hollywood, um, you know, to make good on this promise of he wanted to write something that was reflective of his experience. Um, this film is somewhat based on his life. The tragic turn, which we have been foreshadowing, is unfortunately something that happened to him. Not the exact circumstances, but it is something that happened to him. And as he hitchhikes out to Hollywood, he becomes friends with an actor by the name of Mike Evans. And they start kind of writing and creating together because at the time... Mike Evans had been cast as Lionel Jefferson on All in the Family. And he wanted, he was talking to, you know, my, or sorry, he was talking to Eric and he was like, I kind of want to expand my role. So Eric Monty wrote up a script of a way that could expand the Lionel Jefferson character. Famously, this was taken to Norman Lear, uh, creator of All in the Family, and Norman Lear loved the script, recognized Eric's talent, and then wanted to use this. So here is where is the last time I'm going to say anything complimentary about Norman Lear. Probably for the rest of my life, because knowing that Eric Monty's story is going to make you feel some type of way about Norman Lear. And look, if you know this story already, and I'm not like breaking any ground here, it's just something, unfortunately, I was not aware of. If you didn't know this, um, the writer of Cooley High was also the creator of The Jeffersons was the creator also of What's Happening, was also the creator of Good Times. He was also the person that went to Norman Lear and said, you need to cast Red Fox and Sanford and Son because originally that was supposed to be an all-white cast. Eric Monty, that golden age of television that Norman Lear often gets credited with, that was Eric Monty. He was screwed out of an incredible amount of money and also an incredible amount of credit for the work and the contributions he made to media at that time and also many of our modern sitcoms that we love. So Eric Monty's story is really deeply fascinating in that way. Um, 
you know, he was hired at points, but he also, he, there were times where he really disagreed with Norman Lear. Norman Lear, um, one of the big moments, and this is something that's very well documented with the cast on his TV shows. This is actually something that happened on, not only on the Jeffersons, but also happened on Good Times and what's happening. Um, essentially, like, Norman Lear never wanted it to be that in families of color that there were two parents. An argument that he got into with Eric Monte quite frequently. It's why Eric Monte stopped working with him and oftentimes led to a lot of very well-known protests by cast members who were working under Norman Lear or productions related to Norman Lear. So I say this because why this is so important. One, those TV shows are incredibly influential to our modern media. Cooley High is incredibly influential to our modern media. And if this is the first time you've heard the name Eric Monty or knew his story, it's really important to investigate why. And I know for myself, it really made me critical of my lack of understanding of what his role was in media today. Yeah, um, you know, finding out, and it was so obvious to me, um, when you hear all this, like, the find out that, What's happening? If you see Cooley High, what's happening is essentially it is. It's an adaptation, an adaptation yeah. of that. So for somebody to try to take away the credit um, to Eric Monty for that show, I mean Raj is preach. Yes, yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. 100%. Raj and preach is the exact same character. Who is Eric Monty? <laughs> right, well, right, yeah. So and and essentially again, you look at that entire show. It's essentially this this film. So that alone to me drives me crazy to to know that he wasn't given the rightful credit for that and had yeah. to fight for that. I think they ended up, he tried to sue, right? He did. He won a million dollars in a lawsuit. Which is a million dollars is a lot of money, but not, not when, for, you know, you know, what should have been, you know, a, a really big career. And in some ways it was considered that once he started to sue Norman Lear, he never really got other opportunities because of that. No, and it, and it's really well documented that the offers dried up. And then, you know, and unfortunately Eric Monty dealt with some very like personal struggles um, with his health, with addiction, and it's like hard not to see where the seeds of that are in if you're not being appreciated for your art, not being given credit, you know, working and seeing someone else be praised for work that is yours and how fresh, incredibly fresh Frustrating that must be. Right. And on one end, we have to sit there and, and there there is, you look at Norman Lear and Norman Lear, you know, brought these TV shows to television that I think is, is worth noting. Um, but if we are to understand all of this and really the evidence shows that it is true, um, that's really disheartening and makes you look at it a different way. Uh, Eric Monty ends up, ends up into a homeless shelter in 2006. Yeah. The Chicago Tribune, um, they had found this out about him. He was still trying to talk to his manager, like, and writing scripts from the homeless shelter. Yep. Um, now, yeah, he did have some personal struggles, and and that ends up being where how he ends up getting. And then so the Chicago Tribune ends up doing this whole big piece about him, um, you know, and, and happily for his story is he ends up getting something, you know, his life a little bit more back goes back to living in Chicago. Mm -hmm. I think now he lives in Oregon, I believe. Yes. Um, So, but to know that the creator of all of these, you know, like you said, Landmark television television shows, extremely influential shows, you know, ends up not being able to live off of 
that alone, because it's been taken away from, is really, really heartbreaking. Yeah, and it's really tough. And then the problem was, and like, and so I actually credit um, the Michaud mission, that the podcast I mentioned earlier, because like I didn't know about like all of the incredible strife that happened on those sets because there were actors that were saying like, look, the things that you are writing, you know, and again, like once that writer's room became pretty like homogeneous again, like the, the stories that were being written, the cast took great umbrage with and really tried to push back against it. And I, the support wasn't there. And look, we're not breaking ground by talking about the inequities in Hollywood studio systems and television studio systems, of course, but it's important to note with this because you see a film like this, you read this writing and you think, what was stolen from us as film viewers by this person not being upheld the way they should have been? What was, what didn't happen because how Norman Lear devalued Eric Monte's contributions to the works that he was credited for? What did that do to Eric Monte's career? And then when Eric Monte pushed back, what were we further denied? Because it was seen as, well, why are you asking for that? Norman Lear is a hero. And it's like, okay, in one version of that story he is, but certainly not in Eric Monte's story. He's not. You know, and I think it's important to look at that kind of like, you know, that well-rounded perspective of like how we look at these figures. You know, there are definitely like people that, we are fans of and then it's like you learn things and you have to reckon with that and so like so listen if you're listening and you're a massive fan of like Norman Lear and his contributions to media like this is not me trying to like at all rain on your parade I just think it's like so important in talking about this film to talk about what happened with Eric Monty. yeah I don't think it's our we're not necessarily trying to put a place of, of necessarily diminishing the work and contribution Absolutely that Norman Lear not, did no. but we are thinking we are championing those who create the art and the work need to have that recognized and continue to be recognized. I always knew uh, the story with John Amos and Good Times, but I did yeah. not know the Eric Monty portion of that. So yeah, it was and really it, interesting. No, and it is. And then it's just like, you know, and it, it, it is, unfortunately, when you start pulling out that thread, it's like, normally, what was your hang up? Like, why was that important to you that you portrayed characters in this? But like, it's just, it's really, really tough stuff to deal with. But to get, you know, to get back into the film, um, you know, in this kind of the, these scenes of, you know, Eric Monty wanting to kind of capture youth, you have this great, once they shake down the sex workers for money. I, I do want to just <laughs> quick shout out to the random scene about Jimmy Lee. Yes. <laughs> where he scams the guy out thinking that he's like essentially going to hook him up with a, one of these workers. Uh, but essentially just, it's such a random scene to the movie and does not serve any purpose. And what I understand is like, essentially right, some of this was like Eric Monty telling, just writing down stories yeah. and then kind of creating this. And this felt like one of those of just like, no, I, I knew somebody that did this. Yes. And I need it to. <laughs> well, and the scene after that can kind of feel like that, too. The fight in the movie theater yeah. during Mothra versus Godzilla, which is like one just such a cool way in which this is shot because the fight eventually. So essentially they go to they go to see Mothra versus Godzilla. Um Kind of in thanks to Pooter, a fight breaks out. But the fight happens behind... Poor Pooter. Poor Pooter. Um, the fight breaks out behind the film screen. And it's, like, just such, like, a beautiful... Like, Michael Schultz, like, making that decision, I think it's just, like, so, so genius. And, like, he does so much with, like, lighting and shadows in this, like, in that, that alleyway sequence earlier. Um, I'm just showing like, you my notes because you just said that. And I just oh wanted my God. to show you that I literally wrote down the best shot, shot of the, the film. <laughs> is when that fight breaks out yes, behind the movie yes, screen. Because uh, so great. 
Oh, I want like a painting of that somewhere. It's just like such a cool scene. And like, and this, you know, leads into something that's like, just feels like really beautiful and special, which is the, um, the romance between the Brenda. The My Girl montage. Oh my God, I love this so yeah, much. Yeah, so we get this great, you know, like a song, my song, uh, My Girl song. Uh, sorry, I said that goofily. But, yeah. you know, the song My Girl plays, and they're, you know, yeah, Brenda and and Preach having this date around Chicago, and I agree with you. It almost turns into this rom com, oh, and it's, it's so sweet, really sweet, really beautiful. And then they have like the, you know, so like the fruition of their relationship. Um, they're intimate with each other, and I think I was wondering how you were going to word this. <laughs> okay, I wrote they had relations. <laughs> Okay. I Even just, though we use the term sex worker, so I'm not really sure why we're like That is the appropriate term. Um, so I just want to say, if you've listened to this podcast, you're like, wow, that's restrained. I'd like to handle this in a restrained manner because it's like an oddly like very romantic and I don't think at all exploitive or overly sexualized love scene. It's actually incredibly tender um you know so these are adult actors who are playing these roles yeah. like and and they handle it in a way though that honors the fact that they are playing younger people and and it feels like very tender and it feels um it doesn't feel like when you're watching sometimes like a sex scene in a movie and you're like this is just put in here for reasons that i can't say in a way that would be like non-profane but like it's just it's in there just like to be exploitive and to be like you know exposing in that way this doesn't feel that way it feels like this is the fruition of their relationship and then he totally blows it <laughs> i'm not gonna touch that um, I know. No, but I do want to say, though, I agree with you. I think it's a be- really beautifully shot thing. I also like how they lead into it because it's showing Preach so clumsy when he's um, trying to kiss her. Yeah. And what I like it's about cute. that is they don't shoot it for laughs. It's It just feels realistic for these two. Yes. And then I agree with you. What I think the, the, the love scene is so important because I think it's to show the connection between these two characters. Like... It's it's respectfully done. It's beautifully shot, and it really adds to it. But then we get to, you oh, know. he tells her that she was a bet. Like yeah. it's she's Which, she's all that totally stole this, by the way. <laughs> Which we, we, we didn't mention was a bet at the very beginning. Oh, of yeah, the movie. I'm sorry. Well, because like kind of like, and listen, it's like done for jokes. This is not done in a harsh manner, but he kind of like bets Cochise that like he can yeah. get together with Brenda, and it happens. And I think like, and this is again, this is this reminder that this is a 17 year old, and I think like he wants to almost like be like, look, this is how long I've admired you. I made a bet. Like, you know, and I don't think it's like that he's actually oh. trying to win her in that way. I think it's just. He says it in a way that you almost think, like, buddy, I don't think you understand. That's not a compliment. Like, right. but he means it in a nice way, but it's like, it's so bad. He's happy. He's like, so he's, happy. yeah, I agree with you. I don't think he's, tr- he's not about him actually winning. It's winning because he actually wanted to to be with her. Yeah. And, and, but yeah, it's it's just, this, and he realizes it almost right away. And, and, but she gets her revenge. She, she does. Well, you know, so this is like, this transitions into a different part of a movie. So it's like, honestly, you know, we said we would talk about this film, I think, in thirds when we talked about how we would handle this. And this kind of moves into the, like, the, not finale of the film, but I think all of the events that are really, like, amplifying how that earlier moment of being in that Cadillac is now going to have repercussions throughout the rest of the film. How... You know, um, Damon uh, being jealous of Cochise making out with Loretta is now going to have some further repercussions. So, um, 
Essentially, what ends up happening is at school, you find out uh, that the Cadillac they were in was stolen. Um, I mean, didn't we already assume that? <laughs> I didn't. I thought I'm, it was their Cadillac. I, I'm pretty sure we all knew. Except for Actually, you. can I tell Your you? Your innocence is showing. <laughs> I think there's something that's said. It's something about it being a nice so. Cadillac. Yeah, there's yeah. something that's like a coy reference to I think I was supposed to pick up on and I didn't. But essentially, We also get to meet my favorite character right now. I'm just about to talk about him. So we meet Mr. Mason. So Mr. Mason... Um, you know, it is is a teacher at the school. So unlike the teacher we see at the beginning, who um, is an idiot and also completely unaware of her surroundings, <laughs> um, I did not take her in that way at all. She seemed. I mean, I didn't know if we needed fifteen minutes of the you know code of conduct, coolly high code of conduct. <laughs> um, I also no, she she's an educator that's checked out. Um, but you know, you have you have Mr. Mason, who's played by Garrett Morris. Um, who, you know, is obviously someone who I think you're supposed to understand is like kind of one of the major figures in the school that's like really invested in the students. I think he, uh, you know, adults in this, in this film for the most part are kind of like non-existent or really like non-presence. Um, but Mr. Mason is, is different in this way. And it's mainly because he saves both Cochise and preach from getting into trouble because as we find out or as you already knew uh stone and robert had stolen this cadillac stone and robert are already in custody the police want to speak to both cochise um and preach and it's mr mason who goes to the police officers and advocates that these are good kids they wouldn't be involved in something like this and he's actually what gets them out of trouble um because, I mean, obviously we know they had nothing to do with stealing the car, but they were there. And you wonder, you know, without Mr. Mason's influence, you have to wonder, like, what would have happened. I do like in this scene when and when Mr. Mason, unbeknownst to uh, Cochise and uh, Preach, he's trying to get them out of jail. Um, I like that the, the cops are smoking weed with them as, <laughs> as they go through this. I thought it was a cigarette. I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> Again, the innocence. Um, but I, Mr. Mason goes to bat for Roger and Stone in this moment know, as well, and really tries does. to get them off the hook. Yes, and I think it's important because of where we go. Well, exactly but. because like, and and what's so dis like like disheartening about this is like, look, I'm not trying to make light of like Grand Theft Auto, but at the same time, like. You don't want to see a teenager's life completely wrecked by, again, the follies of being a teenager. As we talked about earlier, that, like, razor's edge that you're on as a teenager between, you know, a fun story and and, and tragedy. And, and part of the interaction of this, it's almost like Shakespearean, right? Like, what the audience knows versus what the characters mm-hmm. assume. It really plays nicely. It's such, like, clever writing by Eric Monti. And essentially, like, Robert and Stone are trying to figure out, like... Who snitched on them? And unfortunately, um, Mr. Mason can't know this, but by preaching Cochise getting out of jail quicker, they believe that they have told the police that they stole the car. Yeah, because they that's not what happened. Interrogated all four of them separately. Yes. So they have no idea that that's not what happened, that Mr. Mason's just the one who advocated for them, and that. Mr. Mason also tried to advocate for you as well. They just, the but police But they, unfortunately, they had priors. Exactly. And that was, so the, the police officer couldn't let, you know, or felt he couldn't 
let them go. No, and it's like, <laughs> and and it's like such this like you know this moment of like you know an adult here who's really advocating and trying to do the right thing and not knowing the unintended consequences of doing what you feel is the right thing. I. You know, these characters just, again, I can't speak enough to the writing of them and how this story just flows forward because they're such good, likable characters, you know, but they're so, again, they're just kind of flawed in this way. And yeah. I just, I, again, we're kind of in this moment of like, you're, you're rooting for them. Like, you you understand why Mr. Mason's yes. fighting for them yes. to get them out of jail so that their life isn't ruined because of these mistakes. I, I agree. No, it's it's such a, it's it's such an important moment. And then even like I also think like something that happens here too. This is like I would say the other like tender adult moment that happens within this because you have Mr. Mason and then you also have you have Preach's mom. Mm. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So there's like this really important scene. So um, you know, Preach comes home. We've seen his, we've seen his mom before. His mom um, you know, is working overnight shifts. Um, you know, he has siblings, um, and and you get the sense that this is a mom who is like working incredibly hard and being a mom on top of it, you know, that incredible tightrope walk. And, you know, he, he comes home, the mom knows about the, you know, the police, the interaction with the police and she wants to discipline him. And she talks about a, a you know, a type of discipline that, you know, certainly we're not going to forward on this podcast. She tells him to go get the belt. Um, and this incredible tender thing happens. Preach leaves to go get the belt. And by the time he has come back, his mom has fallen asleep and he just like very, very like tenderly like just kind of understands that like his mom wants to make sure he doesn't fall into the trappings again of the, again, this like, I, I hate to bring it back. This is like razor edge that we're talking about with youth. And it's just this like tender thing of like understanding, like this is a woman who really is trying to do it all and the sheer exhaustion of being a parent and wanting to make sure you're nurturing your kids, but also wanting to walk that fine line of being like a good disciplinarian. So they want to stay in line and it's just, like, so tender how he handles his mom. He's, like, not mad that his mom wanted to discipline him. Like, it's more of this, like, understanding of, like, wow, she's so tired. She can't even do this at this point. Like, yeah. look at what she's sacrificing for us. It's a weird line to walk in a yeah. moment where she's, like, go get the bell. Oh, no, I agree. I, I you know, it is, it's an extremely tender moment at a... You know, a time where a kid's understanding, you know, again, it's this this transition period. You start to understand your parents a little bit more, and, and he's seeing that. But it's interesting because we flip to the next day, and we get to Mr. Mason, you know, coming into the bathroom yep. where, where Preach is. He clears out the bathroom to have this really heart-to-heart -heart talk. Mr. Mason, who is literally doing everything he can for Preach. Who's yeah. on again the razor's edge of flunking out of school and but just sees so much promise in him. And this scene is I, I mean, I, I you know what, I, I almost feel like I shouldn't be the one talking about it because it just it but it's heartbreaking because I as a husband to you who is a teacher and I see how much emotion goes in, how much sacrifice, you know, how much just love goes in all of your students and like you genuinely come home and you talk about these kids as as if they are your own because in in many ways for an entire year to four years of their lives they are you yeah. you you have this responsibility and you want to do everything for them and find only the best in them. Uh so that's this heartbreaking scene where Mr. Mason is is trying to 
get Preach to understand, like, what he, you know, can have in front of him. And he tries to talk to him very maturely, very much, you know, almost peer-to-peer, but giving him advice. And Preach is, in this moment, so arrogant. Oh, And just brushes him off in this, like, he makes, like, a joke that just dismisses him. And it's, you can see on Mr. Mason's face just this heartbreak of, like, I'm, I'm, I'm doing everything I can. And I, again, I can only imagine how you felt about it because I'm just back here as, as a viewer on a film. <laughs> well, I, I watched that scene and just went, been there. <laughs> like, yeah, because, I mean, and, and again, like, credit to Eric Monti's writing. Credit to also the way in which Michael Schultz films a scene that both feels interior, but you're watching, like, the play out. Like, you're in the bathroom watching it, but you can't, like, it's not the same kind of interaction you have in the party sequence. You're, like, you can't control it. You, you, as a reviewer, you don't feel like you can control this interaction. And Mr. Mason is doing all the right things. He is saying everything that you should say, but it's also, you have to be ready to receive it. And as an educator, you know, you try your hardest. And even when someone responds to you less than generously, you still keep trying. And that is the sacrifice of an educator is knowing you have to do that. But it's also tough. And at the same time, when I watch that scene, I completely understand how Preach feels. Like, and I think that's always like the important part of being an educator is both understanding that you need to guide and sometimes hear the advice they don't or give the advice they don't want to hear, but also empathizing. Remember what it felt like to be a teenager who didn't want to have to take that advice. Like, that's such an important part. He also doesn't know at this point what Mr. Mason has even done for him. No. Because at this point, he still doesn't know that he's the one that got him out of jail. No. <laughs> and then, like, you know, and this is, like, they're always, like, you know, for a film that also, I think, spends a lot of time, like, kind of in, the, in that driftless space of being a teenager and is not, like, so concerned with must-move plot along. It's, like, nah. this is also where you start to get the ramping up of this because you get, you know, uh, Brenda exposing to who was Preach's girlfriend, who we see earlier, um, you know, that that he has been stepping out. You get then Cochise making out. Oh, no, making love, I think, with... Yeah, well, with, I'm with, sure that's not the words they use, but yes. Yeah, sure. Hooking <laughs> yeah. up. Hooking Preach up. finds at Jimmy Lee's house Cochise and his girlfriend former girlfriend former girlfriend girlfriend. and what i love about this moment in their relationship is like i think in a moment like because like oftentimes the really cool thing about like teenage films is that like when you're watching um them because you're so within that world because you're so interior you forget that that you're watching teenagers often because they're being played by 30 year olds (laughs) but you forget you're watching teenagers and then again it's like that little reminder of like they're still juvenile and petty because like yeah, I mean, Cochise shouldn't have, but dude, you were with Brenda. Like, how much did this really matter to you? But it's, like, still important that... There is a there is a friendship bond. You were going to say bro code. I could feel <laughs> no, it. No, no, I no, could no, feel no. it. <laughs> I was never going to use that term. Listen, I've been in Preach's shoes. <laughs> Sweet. Not, not Everyone assumed. Everyone assumed. <laughs> Everyone knows. Um, <laughs> but I agree with you, because Preach should have no, like, he shouldn't be upset. He, you know, but it's just, I think it's that, like, I thought we had an understanding. Like, he just, yeah. And he's her. And this is a series of events over the last, you know, I think, day that are leading up to this, where he's... Oh, yeah, like, this is this is the problem. Like, Preach and, like, Brenda, like, went to Bone Town, and then, like, life was, like, real crappy for him afterwards. <laughs> like, nothing went right. Like... I love that we've gone from 
relations. <laughs> To just now, I'm just mad. <laughs> you know what? I'm not rewinding the tape. I'm fine with what I've said. But like, the, so and 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 look, this is a rough transition because the sequence of events that happens next is you know, so Stone and Robert um, obviously believe that Cochise and Preach are the ones that told the police about the car. Um, they are on the hunt to find them. Um, you know that confrontation isn't going to be pretty, and. One of the things you would assume because of their bond throughout the film is that Cochise and Preach are going to like head this together. That Cochise is probably going to be better in this situation, but Preach's cleverness might get them out of this. And you can kind of make that assumption because of their friendship bond. The problem is, is this conflict right towards the end of the film over, you know, this girl, unfortunately, is the reason why they're not together at the finale of the film and is the reason why you could argue, although I'll argue it's actually really Damon's fault, why this ends tragically. Because Preach realizes that Stone and Robert are after them. He's down at Martha's. Yeah, he's made up with Brenda. He has made up with Brenda. Yeah, Brenda's forgiven him. They, they've bonded now. Yeah, and yeah. then they corner him in the bathroom. Yes, and, and he's trying to escape. It's just like really like weird scene because there's a girl like in the bathroom, like on the toilet. It's like a very weird scene, like but he's again, yelling at him. This speaks to what you're talking about. Like you don't, if you'd seen this movie for the first time, you don't see what's coming. Because it's all pretty funny for Preach. Yeah, like it feels like very high school antics. Yes, it's high school antics. You're like, oh, they're going to beat him up. Like, mm -hmm. all right, that's like not great. But he like tells... Brenda to like meet him somewhere and you get the sense that this is just there's going to be like a fight and you know we're all going to be better for the journey unfortunately what ends up happening though is that um Damon because he's a weasel Damon gives way to Stone and Robert to go after Preach and Cochise he helps and assists with this um Preach is supposed to go meet up with Brenda Cochise is looking for Preach because of the fight that they've had. And unfortunately, he gets cornered by Stone Robert. Well, it's even more heartbreaking because he finds Brenda. That's right. And Brenda tells him that he's basically running from Roger. And he does. And so Cochise goes to find him. That's right. I forgot about that part. Because, because he's he, worried about he's him. He's worried about him. And he finds Stone and Robert and Damon, and they murder him. Y yes, they do. Uh no, no. There's no... There's no... I don't think that's the intention. I don't think it is either, but that is what happens. They, they go to be beat him up. Beat him up, and he falls, and he... Because doesn't yeah. he hit his head? He hits his head. He hits his yeah. head. They murdered him. Yeah. Like, because they were beat... I mean, it's three against one, and it doesn't matter how athletically gifted yeah. you are. Like, it, you're outnumbered. You, you see immediately on their faces that they did not mean for it to go that. That no. was not the intention. They wanted to beat him up. Yeah. They wanted to beat them up for what they did, but they take off running. Yeah, they leave him there to At die. At this point, Breach, who didn't know what was going on, he finds out from Brenda that, that Cochise is looking for him. Again, that just friendship bond of, like, both of them, even though they were fighting, were there to try to protect each other. They just didn't get to each mm -hmm. other in enough time. No, So, again, like, so Shakespearean, so tragic. And then, yeah, Preach finds him. Like, oh. I literally, uh, this took me, Cochise's death took me so by shock. As I'm writing notes watching this for the first time, I wrote, leave Cochise for dead. I had no idea that 
he, he was like, gonna I just die. didn't see it coming. No. Like, it was genuinely, but it doesn't feel, again, I want to use this, I said it earlier, it doesn't feel unearned. Like, you see how the series of events, it's not like, oh, we have the shocking death. Like, you go, oh my god, you've, you have been building to this yeah. event by event. So it's just so... Oh, You're like, there's just looming presence of death in the film that, like, you don't know it's there until you know. And when, oh my gosh, when Preach finds out, like, the sound design here is that the the L train is going over. And drowns and out his... It drowns out his screams. He's screaming. Um, yeah. He's screaming for help, and you can't hear it because of the train sound. And it's just, like, it's a great use of space. It's a great use of that isolation you can feel in an urban setting because although it should seem like help is but a call away, that's not always the case if you live in urban city spaces. And the industrial complex being the thing that's drowning out his ability to be heard feels, like, so weighty in this moment. Such an incredible choice by Michael Schultz. And then from there, we go to Coach Chase's funeral. Yeah. Which, even at that point, even as as Preach was with him and that, that, like you said, just incredibly done scene, I didn't expect this next scene to, like, when we got to the funeral, I was like, oh my, oh my God. Like, yeah. I genuinely no, was with just, you. I, yeah, it was, I, and I felt just so sad because you do, you love this character so much. And you love their friendship you so much. you love their friendship. And again, just speaking of the chemistry and this bond, and then this goes back to what we talked about. For the first 20 minutes of this movie, you felt like you became one of their friends and you moved through this film. Yeah. So it's like, you know, as much as one can while watching a movie, you genuinely are heartbroken oh, yeah. at this. Um, and then, yeah, you get to this funeral, and I can't wait to, to discuss uh, this with you. The funeral, like, so Preach stays to the side. Um, at the funeral, it's 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 tragic and it's awful and it's gray and it's sad. And then Preach goes graveside once everyone has left to read a poem um, that he wrote for for Cochise. And to me, the line that just like I felt I felt like I had been sucker punched. You could have been the greatest. And I thought, like, what, like, an incredible statement of, like, youth that's ripped away. Like, what a way to discuss, you know, when someone dies that tragically young, when someone is ripped away because of violence. And, like, in all the, the ways in which, like, Cochise didn't have to die, like, all the ways in which these mistakes, like, kind of came to that very unfortunate fruition... The fact that this is Eric Monti's real story of a friend that he lost, not exactly in the same circumstances, but that line, you could have been the greatest, all of that potential that was just stolen. It's just, it's so heartbreaking. And why? For what, right? For like what? That's the, yeah, yeah, he didn't have to die. And then you think about it, it's like, it's also, you know, really like, yeah, of course, like the charge that was, you know, that Stoner Robert were facing for the crime of the car was like, Obviously, like, no, they were probably, unfortunately, going to get jail time because, you know, they have priors. Um, the police are pretty convinced of, that they're the ones who did it. Um, and, and, and I think the film is meant to confirm that it's them. But it's like you realize, like, what they did to get retribution out of anger leads to something, you know, even worse. And although the, the, the postscript of the film doesn't talk about, like, a murder rap for... For the people involved, what you understand is, like, they have to live with the consequences of what they did as well. Right. I mean, you know, ultimately it's, like, for what? Like, um, you know, a, a stolen car for a joyride and because you danced with somebody else's girlfriend. Like, that's yeah. why, you you know, 
this scene to me, I know you had had in our notes uh, that you were going to ask me, like, favorite scenes. Um, and there are so many that I could talk about, but I keep but going... I also knew what your favorite moment in the film was, because I looked <laughs> over at you when it was happening. So. <laughs> I, think this, I think this funeral scene, in so many ways, is just as... You know, we've seen so many funerals, unfortunately, in film it becomes... But the way that this is done, uh, Glenn Turman, and the way that he, you know, plays this part... Like, what we see him preach is he's a totally different person than he has been the entire movie. Entirely transformed. Visually, um, the, from what he's wearing, mm-hmm. you know, the way that they... Like you said, they shoot it with him over behind the trees like where nobody can see him watching mm-hmm. the rain coming down mm-hmm. um the choice that we we see Brenda looking for him yep and almost looks disappointed that he's like disappointed in him that he's not that there he's not at the funeral yeah um then the choice to have Pooter be the only one that sees him yeah because i feel like that and when he wipes uh, the tear off of his face when yeah. he sees that he's there yeah mm-hmm. um you know I, and then you have you know him coming up and like you said that line is so you know but i even like just the some other choices that they make when he just says the really basic line of so much to tell you And I'm like, who of us who have not lost somebody too soon have not felt that in the moment and felt that, you know, so long after? Like, that's just this, you know, moment. um, We get this moment where the callback here where he he pours, you know, pours one out for the dudes that aren't here. Yeah. Um, Which, again, we talk about the alleyway. and, And, again, all this connection of what they were building throughout the entire movie this is where we get this beautiful, heartbreaking rendition of How Do I Say Goodbye? Well, so this is the original version yes. of it. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I, well, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, I just uh, cannot talk enough about just the scene. And then he gives that, you know, he gives the poem that we, you know, we said at the beginning of the show and... Uh, just this entire scene, and then that great tracking shot of you know he's what we learn in this moment is this is literally not the same person that was in that bathroom with Mister Mason. No, only days prior, yeah. like he's completely changed because now he sees he knows life. You know, it's just this it completely changed him. Well, and I think also too to think like in youth you think you understand some things about the world, and then unfortunately the world goes here's a a new special knowledge you're going to have to have. And that's one of tragedy. But what's really incredible about Eric Monte's writing and about Michael Schultz's directing is that in this moment, which is incredibly heavy and incredibly hard, how it ends is with this completely transformed preach who at the end of the film is shown quite literally running off to his future. It is like an incredibly hopeful, uh, forward thinking, um, you know, f- future future thinking in that way of, like, Preach is going to do everything that he has the potential to do. The sad thing is he's going to have to do that without Cochise, but he also knows he has to do it because of Cochise. It's so incredible. Because you're like, wow, how did you turn this and make me feel good in a moment where I don't want to feel good? I don't want to... I, I, I'm so sitting in this tragedy still, but also that understanding of, like, his life now ha- is determined by this tragic event, and he also has to honor his friend this way. It's, like, an incredibly hopeful way to end a film. 
I, I couldn't agree more. I'm so glad you said it like that because I, I agree. I think it's this interesting, you know, it's this weird thing of in some ways because of what he's going to do, this experience will will help him, you know, in some way or these life experience. Um, the fact that this is the moment that allows him to know that he's got to choose to go forward. Like, what's your feeling about what Preach decides not to go to the funeral and do it in that way? Like, do you... I think it's... I think you're to take it as he doesn't need to be in that space to mourn his friend. And although I don't think that's an easy decision for other people to process, I think he knows this was right for him. Like, say, he doesn't... He's not going to... Because the song is, it's so hard to say goodbye to yesterday. He's not trying to say goodbye to his friend. He's saying, like, I'm saying this to you now. So much to tell you because you're coming with me yeah. spiritually. Mm-hmm. I like that. You know? I like and, that. I, and I think I like that's that. why he can't be at the funeral because the funeral, the mm-hmm. funeral, funerals are about goodbyes and that's not what he's yeah. doing. Um, and I think the song helps to highlight that. Yeah, I'm a little emotional there. Thanks <laughs> Sorry, a lot. Sorry, no, Bryce. Uh, no, I... I, I you- Beautifully said. Um, but Incredible Choices by Michael Schultz, who, you know, uh, to highlight, you know, his work as a director, um, he directed uh, a film called Car Wash, directed Crush Groove, uh, The Last Dragon, uh, the version of Sgt. Pepper Lonely Hearts Club Band <laughs> that is often quite maligned. <sighs> Um, he also did the jerk too. T O O. He has like an incredible list of, of TV writing credits that include. Um, if you've been watching the most recent version of the Wonder Years, he has directed episodes of that. New Girl, Blackish, Once Upon a Time. His uh, first di- tra- um, feature film that he directed, unfortunately, was never released. It's a film called Together for Days. It was a gender swap on Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, in which um, a white girlfriend is being taken home to meet the family of her black boyfriend um and it would have been a, a really interesting film to see actually released because that would have been samuel L. jackson's first feature length film oh wow it was yeah. never released um but that was directed by michael schultz as well yeah um you know a movie well I, I do want to jokingly say he directed disorderlies um and the reason why you wouldn't remember this movie i remember this movie um but it, it it's about like orderlies in like a i believe they're in an older person home um and they get into hijinks uh but the main characters are played by the fat boys <laughs> who up until recently you had never <laughs> no and then he was like well you need an education in yes. this uh, but I do want to say a uh, shout out to the um, he also directed the film um, Greased Lightning mm. uh, which starred Richard Pryor really good movie um, essentially it's a movie about Wendell Scott who was the first black stock car driver okay. uh, to win a NASCAR race um Really highly recommend it um, with this movie, like a good double feature of Michael Schultz films. Yeah, I mean, I watched the like watched the whole catalog. And Michael Schultz, he had actually done a play with Glenn Turman, and that's how Glenn Turman ends up getting this role. Oh, in this that's film great! To play oh, so it's like seeing like probably stage work. I would imagine you'd know like, oh, you're going to be able to totally, um, you know, command command the film, command the film, and also like like emulate like this very complex character. You know, I have so enjoyed talking with you about this film, and I think we have talked a lot about things that we really love about this. But I have to ask you, and it's going to be kind of an odd question, but I feel like it's one to ask when you're experiencing a film for the first time. What is your, like, biggest takeaway from this film? What are you walking away with? There's a few different things. Okay. (laughs) If I may. Um, You know, one, I think, you know, the fact that this film... 
speaks volumes that it's, you know, although highly praised, um, you know, very well reviewed, uh, extremely successful. But the fact that it just doesn't get to do it deserves with certain, you know, you know, AFI's top mm-hmm. 100. Oh, yeah. um, we've talked a lot about this. High school films, it does not generally generally get on list, um, which it should. Uh, I think that speaks volumes. Um, you know, Gene Siskel was a huge champion of this film. Mm-hmm. And... It's a Chicago guy. A Chicago to, guy. Yeah. And notably went to bat for them because he showed up for the premiere and they didn't have a red carpet and they didn't have it on the the marquee. And essentially, it just shows that this film was not getting to do it deserved from the, you know, the places it should have right from the get-go. Yeah. Um, and it, again, it, it's such a such an important film in Chicago, um, and then really everywhere from there. Um, I think this film also speaks and kind of spotlights what we're talking about right now with the strike, with the writers and directors, because um, what happened with Eric Monti is exactly what these writers 100%. and um, the actors are fighting for. It, it's again not these the the big successful ones, but the other ones that can get kind of their work stolen from them and not get the credit and do that they deserve. But that's kind of like the, the more, you know, downtrodden things about it. Yeah. That I take from it. But I want to also talk about, like we talked about this, this ripple effect and this film being so extremely influential. Sure. Um, and one of the major things is who this film ends up, inspiring and we talked a little bit about this at the beginning and it's like if you didn't know this movie or you hadn't seen this movie you probably though have seen something that was inspired by this film um and for me again i'll be honest like i think i had heard of the film but i had not really known of the film until you know when we get to put together the show we're always thinking about well what do we want to do next what kind of episodes and i was doing some research on john singleton um Mm. who i think is just one of our all-time best directors a phenomenal director and i end up finding this film from that because this was immensely influential to his career he sees this movie at seven years old Mm. he goes to see it with his mom and his mom burst out in tears during Ugh. the coach's death at the death at the end. And he's seven years old. He doesn't quite understand like why is mom crying. But what he takes from that is this is the art. This is what I want to do. Wow. I wow. want to create this art and something that emotionally connects with people from that early age. And you know, and we often hear about directors and how young they are, and and that's what he ends up, you know taking and going on to do. I mean, and John Singleton ends up being, you know, the first black director ever nominated for, you know, an Academy Award, Um, which, you know, we can talk about, obviously, what that means and, you know, that it took that long and and how few have been since. But it's still very noteworthy that he does. And, And, you know, then from John Singleton, I mean, John Singleton influences Jordan Peele and Nia DaCosta and Barry Jenkins and, you know, Ryan Coogler. And you go, yeah, we have a straight line from Black Panther to Cooley High. Oh, hell yeah. Like, these yeah. films. And I I think that's the biggest thing that I'm taking away from this, this, this incredible piece of work. And after getting to see it and, like, something that you mentioned at the beginning and going, 
oh my gosh, I see that piece in this film. I see that piece. I see this director and how that influenced them. And it, it's just, that's what I, I, I just, it's, I understand why it influenced so many people. And I'm so glad that it did because I, so much work comes from it that I just admire and love. I gotta say, because, like, the natural volley that I think happens in any podcast situation, or at least in this podcast, like, you know, we've been doing this for a few years, is, like, you gave your takeaway, now I shall give my takeaway. I have nothing to say, except your takeaway is everything that should be said. I'm so glad we watched this film. If you're not currently following us on social media, please follow us on Facebook and Instagram at How Could You Podcast. You can find out about all of our upcoming episodes. We are so excited to be into this season with all of you, and we hope you enjoyed our conversation about Cooley High. And until next time, live for today. Music